0: This is the first time. Chirp Radio's live storytelling and music series recorded at Martyrs in Chicago's North Center neighborhood. Here's your host, Jen Sodini. Up next, we've got Tristan A. Smith.
1: He produces a show at the Beer Bistro, a free monthly comedy show. T. A. Smith forever. You can follow him on Twitter. Very funny man. Glad I got to meet him so far. Guys, give it up. Warm welcome, Tristan. Give it up for Jen one more time for hosting. Uh, When did Black Lives first matter to you? I get it. That's a provocative statement. Already prepared for a think piece, you know, uh, a spoken word Jezebel article. Yeah. I understand if there are a few eye rolls in the audience. Part of me is conflicted about being up here, telling a story. I hate storytelling shows. I hate storytelling comedians. I, I'm, I'm a comedian, by the way. Uh, um, like that, That's what they put on the poster next to my name. Comedian. Tristan A. Smith, comedian. Just a, just a vague splattering of comedian. That's all I have to contribute to this. That's what it feels like, at least. I feel like it's an audience that gives you a certain expectation. But that's not what I'm here to do tonight. I'm not here to necessarily make you laugh. Which uh, feels weird for me, because it's the biggest audience I've ever performed in front of. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which means that the most people who've ever seen me perform will not see me be funny. <laughs> uh, but uh, whatever, you know. Here's my sad story about blackness. I'm not an activist, you know, I don't don't watch the news, I read the articles my iPhone lets me. Uh, Like, people think I'm smart, and I get by on that, but uh, (laughs) black people have been mistreated my whole life, obviously. I never really did anything about it. I wrote some Facebook posts, I had some arguments, but never really said anything about it, never thought about it. My whole life, really, until Mike Brown. That's not the one you're supposed to say. The death that was supposed to change me was Trayvon Martin. Tamir Rice, Eric Garner, or anyone else. The one thing nobody ever tells you is that black people are looking for another Rosa Parks, an unblemished person to suffer the slings and arrows of racism, someone for the nation to rally behind. Because Rosa Parks wasn't the first black person to stay in her seat, but she had the resume. A woman who'd never been, been in trouble with the law, who'd worked for the NAACP, who was an example in her community. It's easy to love Rosa Parks. It's not easy to love Mike Brown. And that's the truth of this. If we want to be seen as equal, we shouldn't have to be perfect to gain it. Equality is gained in the struggle, and struggle is, guilt, is uh, gritty, it's painful, and heartbreaking. Struggle came with Mike Brown. When I first heard about the shooting, I remember not being on Mike Brown's side. I remember reading the breaking news on Facebook and thinking people, the black people didn't really have a leg to stand on. The first thing I ever read about it made the shooting seem justified. However, as the days went on, the clear-cut account of events got a little bit hazier. Like, no matter what side you were on, I feel like most people would agree that the case was poorly handled. No, I don't. I don't think most people would agree. I think most people should agree. Because discrepancies arose in the chain of command of evidence, pictures of the body weren't taken because the camera ran out of batteries, and residents of Ferguson spoke about being racially profiled by the cops. Most people don't know this. Most people picked a side and they stayed there. It's really hard to tell a story and say everyone but me is wrong. I get that, I know that. But I was invested in this case. I poured over evidence, I read witness testimony, I reevaluated my life. One of the key thoughts I remember having was, was I seen as human? Like, when white people see me, do they see a person? This is a real question I wondered because of this case. Like when you read the witness testimony, people remarked on Mike Brown's attributes as if he wasn't a person. A construction worker said that he had to gawk at Mike Brown because it was impossible not to. The officer who shot him said that his eyes looked demonic. I remember thinking that as a black person, my faith in my own humanity is tantamount to a person's faith in God. Like I believe I'm human, just like I believe in a God. But I don't know that I can prove either with my words. And I don't know that I can prove either with a gun in my face. A random just side note, uh, I remember Gwen's story earlier where she uh, mentioned the thing about uh, the Mormon's faith believing in God coming from the planet Colab and we all laughed which I think is really funny, because we all think that God is a sky creature that lives with the sun. That's also real. Like, no, your thing's got to be wrong. Our thing about him, super right. That's, of course, it's normal. I'm just saying glass houses. It's just... Uh, but Mike Brown's murder, honestly, it really hit home for me. The question, though, is why this one? Why this case? Why not Trayvon Martin? Why not Eric Garner? Which is happening at the same time. Why not any other victim before? I saw myself in Mike Brown for one simple reason. He was killed a week before he was supposed to go to college. And I could identify with that. I knew what it felt like to anticipate going off to school for the first time. But that wasn't everything, that wasn't it. College alone isn't what made me made this story real for me. But I didn't know what did. I used to have a joke with myself that I, I was lucky I didn't have any repressed memories. That I hadn't experienced anything tragic enough, traumatic enough for me to forget. Obviously, the thing about repressed memories is you don't know you have them. But I felt for sure I didn't have any. I couldn't. My first time happened when I was 17 years old. My friends and I were freshmen at Morehouse College in Atlanta. It was the weekend. We wanted to go to Georgia State University and see if they had any parties we could attend. Morehouse is an all-black, all-male school with a dry campus. We would have taken a trip to the Republican National Convention if it meant getting out for a few hours. Four of us, all African-American, piled into the car of one of our floor mates. In freshman year, only a few people had cars. We almost exclusively traveled by train. But this was a treat, and we were lucky. Let me tell you a little bit about who was on the trip. There was Deshaun, the driver. He was a cool, hilarious guy, great student, and had the smoothest voice ever. I was legitimately jealous of how deep his voice was. The passenger in the front seat was Mike. Mike was also really funny. He loved sports, and he loved Philadelphia. Sitting next to me in the back was Dave. He fucked white chicks. That was his quality. He just <laughs> he just fucked white women. Yeah, you know? <laughs> it wasn't like not exclusively, but we gave him a lot of shit for it because it was funny. So that was just. <laughs> I'm sure he had other defining traits. <laughs> we honestly never got to them. <laughs> the thing about traveling by public transit is that you only get to know how to get to places by that certain route. You don't really know the driving route to anything. Like, we knew the general direction of Georgia State, but midway during our trip, we realized nobody knew exactly how to get there. uh, We were driving around, looking for street signs. No luck. Randomly, Dave saw a police car parked in a parking lot with two officers standing outside of it. Of course Dave saw the police car. He grew up in Princeton, New Jersey, which, by the way, is why he fucked white women. He didn't really have a choice. (laughs) And the cops in Princeton, New Jersey were probably hospitable. Knowing that, Dave uh, suggested we go to the Atlanta police for directions. And none of us as black teenagers objected. So we pulled into the parking lot, drove up to the police car, and Deshawn said, excuse me. With that, two guns were drawn and pointed at our car. I immediately froze. I noticed that one of the officers was white and the other was black. I noticed the white officer drew his gun first and the black officer hesitated, briefly. I noticed that the black cop looked more afraid. Then I looked at everyone else. They all had their hands up. I remember thinking, they're not gonna shoot us. But everybody else in the car had their hands up, and I didn't. So I put my hands up to not be the odd man out. I remember thinking that even if they did shoot, I would likely survive. I was in the back seat. The bullets hit the driver first, I thought. (laughs) That gave me me actual solace. (laughs) That's what it really took for me to calm down. And uh, Deshawn spoke in a soothing, deep voice. If you're ever being held at gunpoint by the cops and you need a voice, Deshawn's your guy. His voice was smooth enough to talk us out of being murdered by the cops. Hey, there's no need for that, he said. We're not trying anything. We just wanted to know how to get to Georgia State. What happened next was almost as shocking as having a gun pulled on you for asking directions. Uh, The cops pointed to the right. That was it. (laughs) As if things were just normal, as if they didn't have guns drawn on us. And we drove off as if things were normal. <laughs> we, uh, we never got to Georgia State. We didn't even talk about it. And I repressed that memory for 10 years. Mike Brown unrepressed that memory. It took a look at what might have happened for me to see the importance of black lives. It took the death of a teenager who didn't have Deshaun speaking for him to open my eyes. Years later, I remember thinking that my situation probably wasn't normal. That white people have a different experience asking cops for directions. It took 10 years for me to be faced with that memory. And one day I talked about it. A week after no charges were filed in Mike Brown's death, I told that story until the other passengers in the car that night spoke up too. It turned out I was the first one of us to acknowledge it in 10 years. Dave talked it up to a bad memory of his college experience. My friend Mike said he didn't think anyone else remembered but him. He may have been right, at least until Mike Brown came along. Thank you.
0: day I met you We were so young You were a blessing There was no guessing You were the one Love is so crazy We had a baby And said our vows That's when you told me Should anything happen I can hear you now Told me if the sun comes up, I'm not home. Be strong. If not beside you, do your best to carry on. Tell the kids about me when they're old enough to understand. Tell them that their daddy was. And under it I can't help but wonder if you see it where you are Whatever the reason we don't see the season change again Maybe me on government side, I'll meet you the other side It's true love don't best to carry on. I'll tell the kids about you when they're old and to understand listening to a Chirp Radio podcast of our live storytelling and music series, The First Time. Our storyteller was Tristan A. Smith, and The First Time Four performed That's a Good Man by India Ari. The First Time Four is Steve Frisbee, Liam Davis, Gerald Dowd, and Scott Stevenson. To hear more first-time pieces, check out the series' website, firsttime.chirpradio.org. And you can find other podcasts produced by the station at chirpradio.org podcasts. Terp Radio, hear what's next.